Let's get Polymega. More about this and other stories on This Week in Retro. High-resolution color graphics. This land of high technology. The revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. The Spectrum art world loses a master. What has Atari gone and done now? A playable Pac-Man museum. And Polymega gets N64 support. All this plus our community question of the week on This Week in Retro. Up-to-date news for out-of-date tech. How are you doing this week, John? Are you all right, mate? I'm doing just great. I'm doing great. You know, it's it's winter has arrived here in West Virginia. I'm slowly starting to get acclimated to bundling up as much as possible before I leave out of the door. Yeah, it's arrived with a vengeance here. We had the soft launch of the cave uh, this weekend. And I, honestly, I thought it was all going to be cooled off because on the Saturday, the morning it happened, winter suddenly hit and, and the snow started falling here. And um, oh, wow. yeah, incredibly, people turned out. I thought it was just going to be a no-go, but they made a huge effort. So I'm really appreciative of that. And I, I've got a video in the works to show the soft launch and how it goes on the channel soon. So I'm looking forward to sharing that. Neil, when you think Batman on the TV screen, which Batman comes to mind? Uh, The Michael Keaton 1989 version, the super moody Christopher Nolan Dark Knight, or the campy Adam West 60s edition? Adam West, all all the time. I mean, you specifically said TV screen there and not movie screen. Uh, For me, that makes a big difference. And Adam West is always the first because despite growing up in the 80s, it was shown every single morning, I think. I think it was on Channel 4, uh, like 6 to 6.30 a.m. slot, something like that from memory. Uh, and as a kid, campy wasn't really a thing. You you just accepted the reality as it was presented to you in Batman's reality. He wasn't a spandex-wearing camp dude. He was a, a gritty crime fighter who just <laughs> happened to wear primary colors, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shark repellent in the belt. You know, it's yeah, a normal it's thing. It's normal. It's normal. That's the reality presented to us as kids. And the Joker, <laughs> I remember, was genuinely disturbing. Um, what was the name of that original actor who, who played the Joker? Oh, um, boy, you asked but me with, too quick, but I do remember that he refused to shave his mustache for the part. That's right. So instead, yeah. the makeup artist just painted the white paint over his mustache. Yeah, Wonderful. I, I, I never noticed that in the low-definition TVs of the time. I never actually <laughs> noticed that. But um, yeah, I didn't like that Joker at all. He, he really did actually scare me. So yeah, Adam, Adam West all day for me. Now, what about in games um when i say batman the video game do you immediately jump to batman on the amiga you know made famous in the amiga pack slingshotting around the roads of gotham in the batmobile literally slingshotting uh or uh the jump inside a comic book puzzle solving of a batman the cape crusader on the zx spectrum or the c64 or do you think more modern do you think uh you know the although it's pretty old by this point you think about the great 3d beat-em-up arkham asylum Hmm. Hmm. Uh, well, you've missed one off your les- list there, which makes me suspect you might be choosing it yourself. So I won't mention that one. Um, and uh, I just checked out while you were talking there. Cesar Romero was the name of the, the actor. Cesar Romero, yeah. that's right. Um, so, um, yeah, for me, it was Batman the movie on the Amiga. Uh, I really liked the swing mechanic of the grappling hook, which was basically lifted straight out of Bionic Commando. I thought that was a lot of fun. And I liked the car driving sections, which moved along at such a nice pace on the Amiga that... It, it it taught a good lesson to a lot of dedicated, you know, 100% driving games that just didn't match that speed and that smoothness. So I think it re- did a really good job on that. 
Well, they've no in ocean. Maybe, maybe the car driving sections were just lifted out of some other ocean game and, and slotted you in there know. to get this thing ready in time for the movie's release. I don't know. I don't know. In fact, it didn't come out in time for the movie's release. It was a little bit later, but um, yeah, it was a good game on the Amiga. And I know on the eight bits, you got that alternative side-scrolling view in the car sections on Batman the movie. Um, and that was a completely different game. Again, you were kind of going up and down and side-scrolling and, and popping the balloons and all sorts. Because um, mm-hmm. you had the car section and you had the Batwing section further into the game as well, which I enjoyed a lot too. So, um, yeah, um, Batman on the Amiga, the Cape Crusader on the 8-bits and on the Amiga was a good game, but a very different game. And on the Amiga, it felt like a real 8-bit, 8-bit throwback to like those Dan Dare kind of flick screen adventure games. Um, mm-hmm. so Batman, the movie on the Amiga just felt a bit more futuristic to me. And of course it was selling a lot of Amigas in that Batman pack. So, um, that's my choice, but uh, tell us your choice, John. I think I know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, I grew up playing the NES version of Batman, uh, unsurprisingly, and, uh, it still holds a special place in my heart. Uh, it's definitely worlds away from the Batman that I knew because at the time that I played Batman, I had not yet seen the movie that it was based off of. Uh, and, uh, and so I was like, boy, this is much different than the Adam West Batman, much like you, I grew up watching the Adam West Batman. Uh, I actually had the soundtrack on record on LP that I would listen to constantly. Um, and, uh, the, uh, it featured the bat Tootsie. I'm not going to lie to you, Neil. Uh, but, uh, it, uh, I think that, um, now as a, as an adult looking back at the Batman games, you really can't discount the importance of the Amiga Batman game uh, because it was so varied in, the, in its action. You, you did have the over-the-shoulder car driving game mm-hmm. part of it. You have the you know the side-scrolling Bionic Commando uh, section, as as you mentioned, and it also was the the ship that launched a thousand Amigas. You know, it was David Pleasance's brainchild to put this game in a bundle with the Amiga 500 and sell it as the Batman pack and for a lot of people that was their entry into the amiga scene so yeah but anyway whichever version of batman springs immediately to mind uh all video game versions of the dark knight oh just a little bit of gratitude to the first ever video game in which you played the pointy-eared hero uh and that is batman for the zx spectrum of course released by ocean software in 1986 uh, are you familiar with this this earliest batman game neil Yes, absolutely. I am. It's it's held up as an eight bit classic, so I do know it. Um, had that really nice isometric style that worked so well with the with the Specky's colorful palette. That's the one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this was one of the first ZX Spectrum games I ever played, and uh, it's still my favorite of the all of the isometric puzzle adventures, and as you know, there's tons of those on the Spectrum. Uh, Batman, well, he, he looks like Batman. Uh, he looks more like the Adam West Batman or the Batman of the 70s comic book. He's got a gray top rather than a black top, and, uh, and you know, you, uh, you solve puzzles in this game. It's more of the Batman as detective rather than Batman as action hero, which is one of the aspects of the character that I've always enjoyed. Um, now, Neil, the reason why I bring this up is because uh, Batman's artist, uh, Bernie Drummond, regrettably passed away a few weeks ago. Uh, in fact, Bernie not only did the art for the Spectrum version of Batman, but along with programmer John Rittman, uh, he was instrumental in convincing the top ocean brass to get the Batman license in the first place. 
Uh, I know it's really hard to believe now, but Batman in the early 80s wasn't the worldwide phenomenon he would become at the end of the decade. And uh, Ocean Management actually thought that Batman wouldn't be recognizable to kids at the time. That's that's something that seems mind boggling in hindsight, don't you think? Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Um but then when you think about it, Batman the movie is really what rejuvenated the franchise back in 89. It was nothing more than uh, an early morning two-decade-old TV show for me then, although I'm sure there will be plenty of hardened comic book fans out there who will argue differently and, and, and tell me, I don't know, maybe it was a peak period for the comic book in, in, that, in the 80s. <laughs> I wasn't in, in that world, so I don't know. But certainly in the mainstream, it was a two-decade-old TV show that was on in the early mornings. And right. um, then along comes Batman the Movie, 1989, which was the first movie in the UK cinema, I remember, to hold a 12 certificate. That was the first time we ever saw this new 12 certificate. So you had to be 12 years old or over to go and watch it at the cinema. Oh, interesting. Now, hmm. in the UK, is that 12 full stop, or could you be under 12 and just have a parent with you? No, for that, you would have PG, which is parental guidance. So you, you have ah, U for universal parental guidance, 12, 15, 18. Now, how do they it. how do they check? Were children required to bring their birth certificate with them to the cinema? How, how did you know? Do you know what? In all my years of going to the cinema and going to films, I'm not old enough to watch. Nobody has ever, ever asked me. Um, I don't know if that was because I was born with like a five o'clock shadow or <laughs> what it was. But um, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, it depends what cinema you were going to. A lot of them were independents where I grew up back then. And um, mm -hmm. they were just happy to take your money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's similar situation here in the States. But getting back to our story about Bernie Drummond, um, you know, there was an interview that uh, John Rittman did uh, in Retro Gamer a couple of years ago. And uh, this was before the passing of Bernie. And he said that Bernie created what looked like a random mess of dots with no sign he knew where he was going. And then he went with it from this crazy doodler persona to craftsman instantly sculpting a matching eye then an entire character uh you know when when you create pixel art there's a period where it just looks like dots on the screen and the best of the best you know there's a there's a switch that turns on at some point during the creation and all of a sudden your your jaw drops and you have this beautiful fully realized piece of art that's just made up of all these dots on the screen and and bernie was definitely one of the best yeah it's really nice to see someone creative bring art together and make art happen i don't know if you've seen those trailers going around for the new beatles documentary um, oh yes peter jackson's son and there's this yeah, trailer going watched... around oh you've seen it i haven't seen it yet no spoilers please you know i want to know no if spoilers they, i want to know if they become successful or not <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, there's this thing in the trailer where john lennon um no paul mccartney is just making noise with his guitar and and humming and and suddenly over a period of about 45 seconds this noise evolves into the first ever kind of instance of the song get back it, it, it evolves mm -hmm. into that song and it's just wonderful watching art come together and i would have loved to have watched um bernie sit down at a screen or or many other pixel artists for that matter and just see because anyone can put a dot on a screen but to see it come together as a piece of art uh, and even better an isometric piece of art because every single element of that game has to line up perfectly where it will look completely out of place if the pers perspective is wrong on it. So, um, yeah, I would love to have seen that. I don't know if there's any 
old VHS footage of um, behind the scenes at Ocean or anything like that, where we might catch that. If anyone knows, let me know. I'd, I'd love to know that. Um, and of course, Batman wasn't the only game he worked on, was it, John? What, what other games no. might we know Bernie from? No, the uh, the dynamic duo, see what I did there, of uh, Drummond and Ritman didn't stop after Batman. Uh, they went on to create other seminal isometric titles for the Specky. Uh, Head Over Heels is probably the most famous, uh, you know, another great isometric puzzle game. Uh, but they also did a soccer game, Neil. They did the football game Match Day 2. Uh, which is a totally different art style than the isometric games, but still, still pretty good. So match day uh, two, melon- Ma- match day yeah. harder, <laughs> match day with a vengeance. <laughs> That's right. This was in the world before the uh, before the subtitle. Um, so a melancholy happy trails to Bernie Drummond, an artist who truly left behind a legacy of classic games. John, the Atari saga continues to feel like, uh, well, feels like we've had a dedicated segment for Atari every week at the moment. It does. Um, It's the new minis, isn't it? We haven't had minis, but it's all about Atari lately. Uh, And this time it's to do with their latest business dealings, of course. You'll recall that Wade Rosen or Rosen took over as CEO earlier this year, and uh, he made some some encouraging noises about Atari restoring its dignity and moving away from some of those stranger decisions that it's made in recent years. We've seen it associated with hotels, with gambling, with cryptocurrency, with all kinds of things. And Wade announced that Atari were, they were not quite resetting their priorities, but stepping back at least from some of those businesses and focusing more on the games, which is exactly where we all want Atari to be focusing. I think most would agree. Well, this week they announced uh, game-related news of sorts. Atari have invested in both Antstream and Moby Games. Now, Antstream is a retro gaming thin client platform in which you can stream classic games with added high score challenges to make them more competitive for online gamers. And uh, Moby Games, uh, many, many of you will know about Moby Games. It's a website that uh, is just a big old database, if you like, of every game for every system you can think of. It's got box cover scans. It's got facts about the games, um, credit lists about who made the games, everything. It's Wikipedia for games, basically. It's brilliant. Now, the Moby Games deal is reported on gamesindustry.biz. It's reported that Atari has the option to buy the website and the database, absolutely everything, for $1.5 million. And Atari have also invested half a million dollars into Antstream, with investment potentially going up, it's reported, to a further $3.5 million down the line. Now, John, Atari taking over Moby Games and having a hand on the tiller in Antstream, how does that make you feel? Um, to be honest, you know, I, I think... I think these kind of investments are the kind of deals I want to see Atari make. Um, and I think these are the kind of investments that they need to make. Uh, we talked a few weeks ago how Wade Rosen wants to reconnect with the gaming community as well as push what he calls premium gaming experiences through Atari's classic IP. And, and so acquiring one, if not the largest gaming database on the Internet, as well as an upstart you know, game streaming service that could be home to its future games makes sense to me. Um, I've got to admit, though, Antstream has always seemed like a very British 
Swedish centric gaming service. Uh, I fired it up a few times and it definitely has lots and lots of games, but it, it seems to be primarily made up of Spectrum and, and C64 games, which there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, there, there are some Euro produced Mega Drive and Amiga titles sprinkled in, but I just don't know how well that service is going to get over here in the States with that, with that game lineup. Um, have you messed around with Antstream, Neil? I have, yeah, and and you're right. It's very British centric. The first time I ever came across Outstream was at a, an expo here in the UK, and they had it all set up. And uh, they must have had the servers in the building because there was no latency, no lag, no delay. It just it worked perfectly, and it was great as a demonstration. But I've been giving it a, another go recently. I dip in and out just to see how it's progressing, and my experience of it is not brilliant um, when it's not in that. Um, contained environment of being at an expo where everything's perfect um i played the game uh, 720 the skateboarding game and i think that's a slightly higher resolution game than some of the other ones and, and the artifacting that i got on the screen was just terrible it looked horrible mm. um i played a lot of robotron which one of my favorite games and that was nowhere near as bad as 720 in terms of artifacting, but it's a very, very fast-paced game. So there were occasions where there was just a small area of the screen that had a bit of artifacting just for a moment, and that was enough for me to run into something. And uh, it was frustrating. It's when things like that happen that the game you're playing doesn't feel fair, and that's when the enjoyment is lost. It's not something that you've done. It's completely out of your control. It's just not fair, and I don't like those situations. Um, and... What was even more frustrating was I've got a new 500 megabit up and down fiber to the house connection at home. So th there's no way that my connection was the Your internet speed is fine. Yeah. The internet speed <laughs> is fine for running ZX Spectrum games, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, you know, it works on a system of gems. You've got to have enough gems to spend on the games to keep playing them, or you've got to buy them, or you've got to watch adverts. Mm. It's all that kind of a deal. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not a great experience for me. Uh, but that being said, where it could improve is something that you touched on, very British-centric. It's a bit odd going into a service like this and saying, I want to play Vigilante or, or whatever. I, I, I'm just making this up. I don't know that this is the case. But let's say Vigilante and the Spectrum version comes up, not the arcade version. Um, right. There's lots of arcade ports on the Spectrum, which are great if you know the Spectrum. If not, they're not necessarily the most accessible versions of the game uh, to just pick up and play. Um, so a little bit odd, but um, this deal with Atari could actually solve that. It could help to bulk out the library with Atari's back catalog. You know, yeah. that could be a really good thing. Um, or perhaps further down the line, if we think further out the box, it could be a way for Atari to create some kind of thin client console that hooks into the service or a service that uses this technology. Um, I've always expected the Sonys and the Nintendos of the world to deliver video games as a Netflix-like streaming service to the next generation. But it would be kind of funny if it, you know, if retro beat them to it. it, it I'd actually quite like to see that. If, if they iron out these problems and we see a new Atari console that hooks into a really good thin client service with a good library of retro games, well, I could be tempted. I'd like to see that, well, John. I, I hate to break it to you, Neil, but they have not. Nintendo <laughs> it's already <laughs> Nintendo already offers its own retro streaming service called Nintendo Online. I, I guess it's not really a streaming service, but the games are so small. Here's the thing, Neil. These games are so small 
that the cash that your browser, uh, you know, uh, spins up whenever you start a Netflix movie, you can fit like the entire spectrum library just within that browser cache. So the idea yeah. of, of streaming these games is just weird because we're you talking make about, a very you know, good point. Yeah. You make yeah. a very good point. Why, why have a whole data center dedicated to this when most of them would run in your browser on Java? No problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, and that's, that's what Nintendo, Nintendo has a, 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 a Netflix like service where, you know, there's, a library of games and some of them cycle in and out and it's like 10 bucks a year or something like that 20 bucks a year um and it's but it's part of the a value add of being able to play nintendo switch games online with other people and things like that sony has a, a, a similar thing with, with playstation plus i think that there are some retro titles available on there but you bring up a good point with the you know you talk about atari creating a thin client console well atari does have a console already you know this new atari vcs Hmm. and um i haven't really been keeping up with you know what's available on this thing but it seems like this would be the perfect way to showcase uh all of atari's offerings as many as they can get uh through you know this this online service if they can integrate AntStream with the vcs and and they'd be stupid not to they can say listen you know you plug this thing in and you have uh access to the entire atari library of say you know 2600 games arcade games plus online leaderboards, competitions, all the things that Antstream seems to be doing really well, that seems like a no-brainer. So I would be I, w- I would be surprised if we didn't see that on that, that new Atari VCS console. Yeah, and I think if they're going to do something like that, they have to move quickly because when this takes off uh, in modern gaming and retro gaming, um, those kind of services are just going to be integrated into smart televisions in the same way Netflix and Disney Plus and all these things are. So if you're going to start selling uh set top boxes for gaming get them out now <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah um, and then yeah, the and other service go ahead John. go ahead oh i was just going to say that you know one thing that Anstream does not offer that i think would be a killer feature is online co-op multiplayer so if you have a game like bubble bobble or something like that and you want to play with somebody uh across the world at the same time online uh there is no way to currently do that through Anstream. so hopefully with some of this atari money they'll be able to to spin that part up Hmm. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I know there's challenges and scores to beat that are shared online. Uh, I, I just kind of assumed that you could play two-player. I didn't look into that. So that is a, a big omission if that's not mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Um, and then the other service may be games. I mean, can Atari do anything to actually screw that up as a service? You know, <laughs> it's a nice, uncomplicated website that lets you get the information you want pretty quickly. $1.5 million is not a huge sum of money in the, in the modern day with video games mm-hmm. and website businesses. So uh, perhaps it's as simple as wanting to buy and control a destination that they know their demographic of gamers will be visiting regularly and, and all the perks that go with that audience. Maybe maybe it's just that simple. I don't know. Or um, maybe they want a bit more integration. Maybe they're going to hook up AntStream to maybe games, look up a game, press a button. You start streaming it from straight there, right there in the website. Maybe something like that. I don't know. It's, it's pure speculation, John. But you're right in, when you said that you were happy to see Atari investing in these kinds of services. All of these things we're speculating about are things, are possibilities because of this move. And who knows what other possibilities they thought of. And it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of money. They will have thought about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And um, hopefully we'll see uh, all of this come to fruition soon. See what Atari's grand plan is. 
Certainly more interesting than hotels and cryptocurrency, though. So, um, yeah, more Atari shenanigans, but um, moves that have a motive that I can understand. And here's hoping that there are steps to more Atari games um, and they don't cause too much pain for fans of the existing services that they're muscling in on along the way. Neil, can you ever get enough (laughs) Pac-Man? Honest answer, John. Um, Yes. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) there's no denying that is an important game in video game history. But I'll be honest with you, John. um, I do feel like I've played enough Pac-Man, a lot of Pac-Man. Yeah, probably probably enough for a lifetime, don't you? No. (laughs) (laughs) I can't get enough Pac-Man, Neil, and I'm serious. Uh, This is one of these games. Now, of course, the original arcade game Pac-Man, yes. If I could go the rest of my life and never play original Pac-Man again, I would probably be okay. But there are so many permutations. There are so many variations out there. Um, You know, Pac-Man is just one of these evergreen games for me that I can always sit down and play one of the games of the series and and have a good time. there's tons of these games, Neil. If I was gonna, if you were gonna take a guess at how many Pac-Man games there have been released over the years, and and I'm just limiting this to official games, not clones. Um, if that, if we mentioned clones, the numbers would be astronomical. But anyway, care to take a guess on how many different official Pac-Man games there have been? Just official Pac-Man games um, uh, with the character in, I guess. Um, right. Right. So we're talking Pac-Man, Pac-Land, Miss Pac-Man, mm-hmm. all of these things. I, I mean, just a wild stab in the dark. There has to be a hundred Namco Pac things, at least, surely. <laughs> well, you know, in preparation for this story, I poked around a bit online. And between arcade games, spinoffs, uh, mechanical games, like, you know, crane machines and things like that, the abomination that is Pac-Land, there are over 200 Pac-Man games. Uh, we talked well. about this. Yeah, 200. We talked about this just a couple weeks ago when we discussed the passing of Hiroshi Ono, but if Pac-Man isn't the most prolific and recognizable video game character out there, uh, he's certainly somewhere near the top of the list. Uh, Something tells me that we're about to add one more Pac-Man to that ever-expanding list, John. Am I right? (laughs) You are correct, good sir. (laughs) Um, Well, kind of. Uh, Pac-Man is getting a brand new compilation called Pac-Man Museum Plus. Plus, Neil, uh, it doesn't have all 200 games on it, but it does contain 14 of the Yellow Guy's most interesting outings. Um, Of course, you get the OG Pac-Man and the other 80s arcade appearances of Super Pac-Man, Pack and Pal, uh, Pack Mania, uh, but there's also some interesting choices here. Uh, some of which I'm pretty sure have not been made available in digital formats before. Uh, you've got Pack Attack, which is a Tetris-like puzzle game I actually owned on the Game Gear back in the day. Uh, you've got a game called Pack and Roll Remix, Pack and Roll, uh, which looks sort of like Super Monkey Ball, and by sort of like I mean really like um and pack in time which if you didn't know this this is actually pretty interesting pack in time is actually a reskinned version of one of my favorite amiga games fury of the furries did you ever play fury of the furries oh Neil? yeah that's kind of developed out of a team of demo Cena guys and it's got yeah fantastic music just a really great little puzzle game yeah love it yeah yeah, so I guess they they sold that uh, that 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 you know that game to somebody over at Namco, and Namco said, you know what, we're going to turn this into Pac Man going back in time, and 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 so it was. Um, 
so yeah, there's 14, 14 games on this thing. Neil. Yeah. So, uh, so at this point, we're just shoehorning Pac-Man into any other game we can get our hands on. Uh, I'm <laughs> right. surprised we haven't seen like a Pac-Man Marble Madness where it's just him rolling around this yellow right. ball. Yeah. What a missed opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, we're just going to do a quick edit here because uh, I want to show you one of my favorite Pac-Man things over there. I'm just going to grab it one second. So there you go, John. I don't know if you've seen this before. This is official. It's called Pac-Man 2. And Ooh, it's Pac-Man a 2. tabletop game. And it's two-player simultaneous head-to-head Pac-Man. So oh, my you, gosh. You both sit at either end and you play two-player, which is, I'm not sure if that features in any of the arcade versions of Pac-Man's. But, um, well, uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. Now, is this is, this is one of these games that's like an LED game, right? Where you have a segmented display. Exactly. And right. uh, yes. yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I have a similar version right here in my hot, hot hands. This is the Coleco ah, yes. uh, tabletop version of Pac-Man. And I believe that the same, uh, should, shall we call it an engine? The same engine that powers your, is <laughs> your, your tabletop is the same one that's in this mini arcade machine because this too features a two-player simultaneous Pac-Man mode. Ah, there two we go. Two joysticks here. Yeah. See, we had one that looked very much like that. I think it was probably distributed by grandstand or someone like that over here not coleco mm-hmm. but it wasn't two player that i remember so there you mm. go two player pac-man is is a fun way that i can still enjoy pac-man despite being sick to the back teeth of pac-man in a lot of instances <laughs> um so back to this pack then uh, this pac-man pack um 14 games i think you said so no mm-hmm. atari 2600 version of pac-man included in this john uh for some reason they left that one out neil i think <laughs> I think that uh, the, the, the powers that be at Namco would probably like for that version of Pac-Man to disappear in much the same way the Star Wars Christmas special has vanished from the face of the earth. <laughs> um, and you mentioned, uh, Pac- was Pac-Land in there? I couldn't remember if you Pac-Land mentioned Pac-Land is one. in there, yes. You know, yes. I, I, you obviously have a bit of hate for Pac-Land. But, um, <laughs> I do. I'm quite, I'm quite <laughs> fond of it. I quite like that little ditty music going and, and the, his little legs going and his hat as he jumps over. I do like the hat, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the ghosts driving the cars. I quite like that. It's a fun little game. Um, and then in this pack, what are, what are some of the more modern outings then? Because I know there was like mobile versions of Pac-Man, which were like endless runners and things like that that came out yeah, a few years yeah. ago. Do we have any of those? All of that, all of that stuff is on there. So Pac-Man 256, which is the the endless runner that actually is quite a lot of fun to play. Uh, that's on there as well as something mm-hmm. called Pac-Man Battle Royale. Wow, because, <laughs> Battle Royale. Yeah, who How doesn't does... need who doesn't need a Pac-Man Battle Royale <laughs> game, right? <laughs> uh, there we go. We're just shoehorning him into modern gaming right. again. I mean, how right. long before we get Pac-Man Survival? He's deserted on an island, and you have to fight back the zombies and zombies. Yeah, sticks. that's. <laughs> <laughs> you know, can you wedge pac-man into whatever genre is hot at the time um wouldn't they do better just to come up with a new franchise instead of shoehorning pac-man i don't know it's obviously working for him but i can't help but think pac-man should be enjoying his retirement by this stage he, he should but as long as he keeps printing money that is unlikely um it seems like people just can't get enough of pac-man and he is because of his recognizability and the fact that he is somewhat associated with the, the family friendly nature of, of these games you can take a pac-man battle royale and it's probably not going to be filled with a lot of ultra violence it's probably going to be a more family friendly battle royale kind of like splatoon uh turned uh you know the concept of the the um, arena shooter into something that you know parents might not be as hesitant to, to let their kids play but um you know i haven't played uh you know these games like pac-man battle royale and stuff like that but um uh, the 
a lot of times, you know, Pac-Man is one of these games too. When you sit down at a party with people and and, and you want to play video games together, letting everybody have a go at, at Pac-Man and whatever guys he's currently in, most people tend to enjoy that. So, uh, you know, the only thing that leaves me scratching my head about this collection is the absence of Pac-Man Championship Edition uh, DX. This is the game that I've probably played the most of, and I don't know if you've played this or not, but I first got it on the Xbox 360, I think. And um, this is a game where you can chain, uh, you can the, the maze changes every time you complete half of the maze, you get all the dots, the other half of the maze changes. You can chain ghosts together and just, it's a fantastic visual spectacle. Did you play uh, Championship Edition DX, Neil? I did not play Pac-Man Championship Edition DX. Just the name makes me laugh. <laughs> Championship it is crazy. DX. Um, no, I never played that, but it sounds interesting. Sounds like a, a new spin on the concept, yeah. Now, the only thing that leaves me scratching my head about this collection is... The absence of a Pac-Man NFT, perhaps? Yeah, well, <laughs> there's that, but... Um... <laughs> But this is this is really a, a weird, uh, you know, a mission. There's no Miss Pac-Man on this collection yeah. now. As much as I love Miss Pac-Man, I mean, it's clearly a better game than the original. I don't believe that the more feminine pack has been in enough games to warrant her own museum. So I can only sadly deduce that this will be offered up for sale through DLC in the future, and uh, that makes me sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's held up as probably the best arcade version isn't it miss pac-man mm-hmm. so it's, a, it's yeah. a massive absence in the in the collection so aside from the games themselves does this collection give you any kind of feelies or any nice extras in the pack is it a physical thing well it's a digital feely neil and just saying okay. that phrase makes me feel weird so i will not <laughs> say it again <laughs> one of the coolest aspects about this collection for me is that you get your own virtual arcade full of these machines. So uh, from what I can tell from the screenshots, all the games, whether they originated in the arcade or not, are actually represented by arcade machines. And you can move these around. You can arrange them in any way you like in your virtual arcade. I love this stuff, Neil. Uh, maybe that that makes me strange, but I, I'm, I'm cool with it. But anyway, you, you also earn coins by uh, completing achievements in the games. And you can spend those coins to buy virtual objects to populate your arcade with. So you can buy jukeboxes, benches, and statues. It's kind of like a little animal crossing mini game within your pac-man museum uh it's 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 really it's the animal crossing arcade i've always dreamed of uh and and i'm i'm being serious about that so that that alone may push me over the edge and get me to buy this thing now neil how about you does this kind of extra content appeal to you at all well this specific example i you know i'm a sucker for a front end john and i admit that there's uh, there's a little virtual arcade to explore, then then that's a real bonus for me. Um, I've used a similar kind of front end for MAME arcades. Um, I can't remember what it's called, like Neon Retro Arcade, something right. like that. Right, yeah, that's exactly Steve, what it's you called. You know the one? Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. the one? Yep. And, and um, you can even use that in VR, and you can walk. You can assemble your arcade with your games, configure them all, Absolutely. and then walk around them, walk up to the cabinet. That was such a great experience. So I think that's a really nice way of presenting these games, um, even if those games were not necessarily arcade games originally. I mean, just to present mm-hmm. them as an arcade you can walk up to is is really nice. Um, so yeah, I really I really like that. And I think uh, the only danger is that that mini game segment, I might find more enthralling than <laughs> playing the original Pac-Man. <laughs> I don't know. I might just you might not be wrong around. about that, Neil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Pac-Man Museum Plus, which again is the name of this game, has been announced for early 2022. 
and it will be available on all of the major consoles and the PC. So if you're planning on picking it up or if you have enough versions of Pac-Man to last a lifetime already, we'd love to hear from you in the comments. A quick bit of uh, Polymega news for you now, John. Do you know much about the Polymega? You know, Neil, I was about ready to say, of course I do. But it turns out I was thinking about the Pie Packer. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Pie Packer. <laughs> this, if you, if you recall, was the online co-op multiplayer adapter thing that uses real carts. So the Polymega uses real carts. That's why they, it was tied together in my mind. We talked about the Pie Packer back in May, but that's not the Polymega. Tell me about the Polymega, Neil. <laughs> okay, so, so the Polymega, um, it's had numerous delays in being launched. It did arrive in September of this year, supporting in the Sega Saturn, PlayStation, PC Engine uh, CD, Neo Geo CD, Mega CD. Um, it's got a CD drive, if you hadn't already guessed already. And um, this system is not FPGA-based like the analog-branded systems or the Mister or all of those things. Even though it was originally touted as being an FPGA-based, they, they kind of wound back and went to an x86 architecture. So what we're looking at is software emulation. That's the order of the day here. So it, really, it's just a very nice-looking PC. And it is very nice-looking if you look at this thing. Um, hopefully, if you're watching the video, Duncan might put some images up of it. Uh, very sleek. And then if you want to play cartridge-based consoles, you need to buy the cart or, or actually what they call element modules and the element modules are about $80 each. You slot them on and then you can play original cartridges. And the big announcement this week from Polymega is that the N64 element module has been announced uh, in which they say at least 90% of N64 games would work great to near perfect. No price has been announced. Uh, hopefully it'll be about the same $80 as the other element modules that are out there. Uh, the main system itself is $449. So you're looking at $449 plus $80 for the module if you want to play N64 games. Um, it's quite a cost, but as I always think with these things in the context of owning all of the original hardware that it supports, so, you know, Sega Saturn, PlayStation, Neo Geo CD, PC Engine CD, all of those things out of the box, plus N64 on top with this thing, the cost of supporting and maintaining original hardware, modding it to give a, a modern output for your TV. You know, if you're really into those games, value for money, I think. What do you think, John? I'm about to get fired up, Neil. Oh, dear. here we go. <laughs> listen. Okay, listen. I've got a software emulator that plays not 90%, 100% of N64 games near perfect, and it does not require some ridiculous $80 module to work. It's called the PC I'm recording this podcast on. What are we doing here, Neil? Why are people paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for a dolled up underpowered PC just so they can pay even more money to put a disc in it that emulates through software exactly what a PC running an emulator does without a disc or with a disc in some cases? Am I going crazy? Why is this a thing? Is playing games and, and games, I might add, that aren't 100% guaranteed to work on this thing really worth it to you? I mean, is having the physical cartridge and placing it into a bay and pushing it down, is that worth $450? Especially when you're playing it on a controller that's about as far away from the originals as possible. I mean, it's stuff like this that makes me wonder if I'm in the right hobby, Neil. It really does. Sorry, I just had to take my headphones off for a breather there, John. You were, you were going at it. Um, don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Um, ah, right, yeah, and breathe. I, I have to say that, um, yes, okay, th those are my some of my instincts too 
on this one. Um, there are perfectly capable N64 emulators out there. Software emulators for e every retro system you can think of really exist out there. Um, considering the outlay for this, uh, and if N64, if you're specifically looking for the N64, if that's your jam, you can pick up the real deal for under £100. It's not like it's a rare console. And, right. You know, you can do a bit of modding for it, but... Uh, you know, you might just buy a CRT. You might want to just do it that way and get the real authentic experience with the original controllers, which you mentioned. Controllers are really important. Um, yeah, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. The Polymega, as I said, was originally intended to be an FPGA console, but they did this kind of switcheroo in development to make it an x86 platform. Uh, and honestly, given the global chip shortages at the moment, it probably wouldn't be on sale right now if they'd continue down the FPGA route because those are particularly hard hit. Uh, there's a lot of people refreshing mouser and digikey websites at the moment waiting for their d10 fpga boards to come back into stock for their misters so polymega kind of dodged a bullet there by going down the x86 route uh, but it does mean as you say it's an emulator a software emulator running on effectively a pc it's it's, it's like a laptop this thing without a screen that you bolt things on top of mm -hmm. so um it's emulation and and polymega haven't disclosed what emulator they're using but they are licensing an existing emulator. So there's every chance it's one of the emulators you're already using, John. Um, it's something that Modern Vintage Gamer discussed in his latest video uh, covering the news of the announcement, just sort of feeling out what emulators it could be, but not getting to the bottom of exactly which one it is because it hasn't been announced and nobody's got their hands on this thing yet. So we can only speculate. Um, but just stepping back a bit to the N64, John, can you remember the first time or have you ever, well, you have because you mentioned you have, but can you remember the first time you emulated an N64? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because it, it was one of the times in my life where I was like, wow, we're really living in the future. Um, when I was getting ready to move overseas to Thailand, of course, I couldn't bring my my gaming collection with me. And so um, my buddy Aaron, <clears throat> my podcasting partner, Aaron, uh, he actually took a uh, an HP Thin Client. We talked about Thin Clients earlier. He took this old uh, HP Thin Client machine and loaded it up with emulators and uh, and games and all kinds of stuff. And I could take this thing with me. It weighed probably about three pounds. It was very light. I got a wireless controller for it, and uh, we christened it the Wayback Machine. It was it, it ran this front end called GameX, and it was beautiful. It was beautiful, and it emulated uh, the N sixty four. I mean pretty darn well i mean it could play all the games i wanted to play and this was you know 2009 2010 somewhere around there so we're talking about you know 10 11 years ago this stuff has been available and uh i loved it i loved being able to play mario golf on the n64 you know super mario 64 um it's one of my favorite emulation memories so yes i definitely remember neil yeah and and that really highlights that it doesn't take a particularly powerful machine to to achieve this um i was emulating the n64 the first time was, was with the emulator called ultra hle back in the late 90s early 2000s oh wow yeah it, it was certainly on a on a pc with a 3dfx card because it specifically used glide and needed 3dfx to uh, to get it running it didn't run a lot of games but it certainly ran mario 64 perfectly um i think zelda as well ran just wonderfully and it was incredible and you, and you could scale up and play them at a higher resolution than the original game on your pc um i mean this is so long ago i still had a crt as my current display so mm -hmm. it tells you how old it how long ago it was um so yeah there are there are many many ways to skin a cat uh, this cat being the nintendo 64 um <laughs> 
that as i say it looks good and sometimes that's enough for people just to have a nice looking thing um yeah so i i the other thing is that it takes cartridges and it doesn't from what i can gather it doesn't play these games directly from the cartridge um i i think it kind of rips them or sometimes it downloads the rom once it's seen you've got the cartridge and then it's in the system and then you just put the cartridge in to play it but it's not using it now i don't mind that i don't mind that at all because the experience is identical to me i put a cartridge in the game loads and that's absolutely fine but um yeah it's, it's worth knowing if that bothers you or not does that bother you john i don't know i mean the, the whole thing is just so ridiculous that it it, it it's beyond me to care because it, the <laughs> moment that you're using the moment that you're using uh, a software emulator and the moment that you're using what looks to be like you know an xbox 360 controller uh the why you would continue to mess around with original cartridges and the expense that that entails because it's not as if you're doing the developer of these games a solid by buying you know original cartridges at inflated prices on ebay to play them uh i understand the ritual of classic gaming on original hardware you know putting the cartridge in in some cases waiting for load times and firing it up but the minute that you pick up that ripoff 360 controller that the polymega has uh the the illusion is shattered for me so i I just don't get this one. It's got a nice front end, John. <laughs> I'm a sucker for a good front end. I'm just like you, Neil, but you know, not, not at $450. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, if you are interested in this thing, check out the Polymega and the N64 add-on using the links in the show notes. There isn't yet a release date for the N64 add-on. We could perhaps expect it in 2022, but with silicon shortages being what they are right now, who knows? Who knows? They've made the announcement. I'm sure they've got it all under control and it'll be seen. Uh, of course, that's not the fault of its creators. It's just the way the world is right now. All right, Neil, as we close out our show, we should talk about our community question of the week. Oh, yeah. So last week's community question of the week was what game caused you the most psychological torment? And people took this in, in multiple different ways, which I enjoyed. Uh, Reading Glasses Man responded on Reddit, on our subreddit. He said, Sim City. Honestly, by the time I'd finished a session, entire weeks had gone by. Ever since, my sense of time has been shot to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> so well, sometimes yeah. games can disrupt the flow of time and space <laughs> i guess i had that a little bit with SimCity, certainly SimCity 2000 but um i was always aware of my my gaming sessions with that the games that i really lost a huge amount of time and, and just completely lost track of time to were civilization yes and yes Rail railroad tycoon as well for some mm. reason i just got really sucked into that for hours and hours but i can see it happening with SimCity. yeah yeah, yeah SimCity yeah, was, my... uh, was a relaxing experience for me. It didn't cause me any psychological damage. It was right, relaxing. me neither. <laughs> <laughs> my game like that was definitely Civ Four. I mean, I could say I remember sitting down in the morning and just starting starting a game and putting all of the you know maxing out all the time and everything like that, and then just mm -hmm. glancing up and being like, "Oh, it's dark outside now. The whole day has <laughs> gone by." So. And I'm kind of hungry. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, OPJ writes. Easy. For me, it's Airwolf on my plus four. I love the TV show, so I just had to get the game. I bought it via mail order, so I had to wait for ages for it for it to arrive. As, and as I was used to fairly quick loading Mastertronic games, this felt like it took forever to load as well. And once it loaded, 
my God, was it painful to play? <laughs> I think I only got past the second screen once. <laughs> From what I remember, you pretty much had to have pixel-perfect movement to get anywhere. Uh, it's the most frustrating game I've ever played, and I still shudder whenever I think about the game. And uh, OPJ76 uh, brings up a good point that, you know, added to the the difficulty and the frustrating nature of the game, you also had on top of that the waiting and the anticipation of a mail-order game. So uh, I can understand how that, that caused him some some psychological torment. Yeah, I can fully understand that. I've not played the Plus 4 version, but I've played the Spectrum and the Amstrad version, and they're all equally as frustrating. You've got to be pixel perfect. It's it's more You've got to be more pixel perfect than Manic Miner and Jet Set Willy. People talk about those as frustrating games, but my God, Airwolf. But what kept you coming back was that it's Airwolf. You know, it's Airwolf with the cool music and the cool helicopter, and you want to be that guy flying that helicopter. And um, for at least one screen, you felt cool but then you felt yeah. utterly destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And finally, Environmental Toe 9060, one of the all-time greatest subreddit name or Reddit names. Uh, the lava level on the PC Disney Aladdin game caused me, my brother, and my cousins no end of frustration and stress as kids. It's always stuck as one of my stronger memories of playing games as a kid. Then, funnily enough, over two, two years ago at the pub, I discovered one of my now best friends helped design and create that godforsaken uh, lava level. Oh, man, wow. did I call him a few choice words when I found that out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a brilliant story. Um, the lava level, is not is that the one when you're on the flying carpet? Yes, um, I, I believe uh, that that's the case. Just completely unfair. It's just throwing things at you, and it's just practically guesswork through the whole level. Yeah, brutal. I, I hope you didn't buy him a drink and i hope he bought you plenty of drinks that night yeah. <laughs> me too i hope so too so neil this week's community question of the week harkens back to our story about the passing of bernie drummond and uh we'd like to ask which zx spectrum artist is your favorite so please post your responses in the subreddit and we'll read the top three most upvoted responses on the air next week today's episode of this week in retro comes thanks to our partners at anchor fm whether you're new to the game or you have an existing successful podcast, Anchor FM offer a home where you can extend your audience and find new sponsorship opportunities to make it the most successful podcast it can be. That's right, Neil. We love Anchor, and that's why we use them to host This Week in Retro. You should check them out at anchor.fm for more info. This Week in Retro was presented by Neil from RMC and John Shawler. It was produced by me, Duncan Stiles. The podcast version of the show is available through your favorite podcaster, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And the video version is available on the This Week in Retro YouTube channel. Join our community subreddit at r slash This Week in Retro to suggest and vote on stories we cover on the show. If you watch This Week in Retro on YouTube, please give us a like and subscribe to help us reach new viewers. If you'd like to support the show, please check out the links to our Patreon and Coffee pages in the show notes or in the YouTube description. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.